iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wilson-Croft. Today, is it time Steve Bruce walks away from his beloved Newcastle United? Leicester City reached the FA Cup semis for the first time since 1982. But are they the real deal in 2021? After an up-and-down week at Tottenham Hotspur, has Jose Mourinho still got what it takes? And there is a huge moment to discuss for women's football as it goes free to air. We'll also look ahead to this week's international football. To help me through it all, Matt Dickinson, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. Hi guys, how are you doing? Hello. How are you? Hello. Hello. How are you? Story, true story, I, I dreamt last night that um, Gilpie Sigurdsson took temporary charge of Everton as manager and they won 1-0. <laughs> Are you not going to Solid tell us any more, any more of the details? They just won 1-0? Yeah, that was it. And Because I, I, was, I was passing a, a shop window and I saw it through, like, you know, like you used to watch tellies in shop windows. Mm-hmm. That, that was the dream. Have you had a COVID jab recently? Because I'm told that does make people have very, strange, very strange dreams. There's one symptom. Footballers' dreams, though, unfortunately for us, lot isn't is not a is not a rare thing. We, we I think <laughs> there is a there is a spin off somewhere in there just called Footballers' Dreams, where we tell the funny stories about the the things that we've dreamt. Um, look, it's more of a nightmare at the moment for Steve Bruce at Newcastle United. He says he takes full responsibility after their three nil drubbing at Brighton. At Newcastle, two points above the drop zone, only two wins in their past. 18 league games. Uh, Bruce says he will never walk away. Matt, if you love something, shouldn't you know when the right time is to end the pain? Oh, getting this sort of, yes, romance gone wrong, are you saying? Um, uh, I find myself torn because, yeah, I mean, everything, everything about form and performances suggests that yeah, on this trajectory, Newcastle are doomed. Is it um, two wins out of 20 in all comps? Um, look at the table and, you know, they've just got about got their heads above water, but they're, they're a team drowning at the moment. I, I, I'm torn between that sort of start reality and, and uh, I guess, to be honest, partly liking Steve Bruce whenever I've dealt with him, which is going back 20 or 30 years. Um, uh, I know that shouldn't. Yeah, won't come into it for for Newcastle fans, but it does leave me I don't know, a bit saddened by how personal it's got. Um, you know, Newcastle fans will say that. Um, you know, I've seen the banners. You know, there was the the the, the bust up recently with Richie and the coward banner, and it's it is getting nasty. Put it that way, and I just yeah, I find that a bit sad. Um, you know, Steve. I, I, I think Steve Bruce is is um is has been trying his best which is which isn't good enough at the moment but for he's been seen as ashley's man which obviously is never a you know a 
that that never helps you in the eyes of the fans and um yeah i i, I you know i saw one fan's website calling him a sort of fraudy geordie um so that sort of personalizing of it is but that's probably what the fans feel is the only way of getting through to to ashley who is you know been tone deaf to the views of the fans for as for as long as he's um, been in charge at Newcastle. No answer to the question, though. Do you, do you, do you uh, well, needs yeah. To- <laughs> I mean, should he walk away? I'd, I'd, I don't think. I don't necessarily think he should walk away. Is he going? You know, should he be sacked? Well, <laughs> clearly, that's um, that's a that, that's a fair question. And on current trajectory, they are look they are looking like they're going to go down. I mean, if they can get a striker going Callum Wilson getting injured is you know is a big blow to that is their top scorer this season but the the failure to sort of use a, a striker um, and to present any sort of goal threat against against Brighton was clearly the the most obvious of of many failings Alison what do you think should he should he walk away if he loves the club so much well, I think I think Newcastle fans have missed a trick here if they don't like the manager the way to get rid of him is to, is to tell Ashley they think he's God, and then Ashley will, <laughs> and then Ashley will do something. The whole history of Ashley's ownership at Newcastle is to be incredibly, incredibly obstinate and to not not listen to the fan voices and almost perversely ignore the popular route. So the more entrenched the the nastiness which which Matt outlined and it is it is it is abhorrent really to have a, a go at one individual like that but, but the, you know the, the bigger the flag the nastier the language the more entrenched the partnership between Ashley and Bruce will be and it become every season almost it becomes a sort of battle of will and you can't help but think that Mike Ashley quite enjoys the sort of power trip of it he's the man in charge he owns the club. He makes the decisions. If he's if he's happy dealing with the manager, he doesn't really care about much else. So, and also, it's all it's all highly unproductive. All of this. It's that really Newcastle had no need to be in this relegation battle. But the more animosity there is around the club, the more negativity. The more you feel they're being sucked into it. So it's 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 those that they keep creating stumbling blocks for themselves. It's it's utterly, utterly bizarre. And um, but I think it's a strange question, Hugh. You're sort of saying any manager who's failing, who has um, some sort of relationship with the club along the way, whether it's a childhood fan or just has become, you know, come to love the area he works in, has a duty to fall on his sword should things go wrong. I think it's a unique situation at Newcastle, personally. I mean, not not just because Steve Bruce is, ha- has that affinity to the club, and I wouldn't just say it because it's him either. Um, he, he's working for someone who isn't going to move, and I think it, it's evident from the outside. A little bit like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United, who I'm sure we'll speak about a little bit later on. But when you know the club will relentlessly support you in the in the role, regardless of results, at some point you have to say, am I the man for the for the job, two wins in 18, you know Mike Ashley isn't going to do anything about your position. If Manchester United went and lost the next five games, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I imagine, would, would know that Ed Woodward's not going to do anything about his position at Old Trafford. You know, that those are unique situations in football, given 
I think, how readily some clubs sack their managers. So really, my point is, if you're at a club where the, the, the hierarchy are just so slow in, in moving, do you maybe have to do something about it? I don't know. Gregor, what do you think? No. It's <laughs> very simple, I think. Look, they're also, you've got to take into account Steve Bruce's kind of personal pride. He's, he'll still believe somewhere deep down within him that he can, that he can turn this round and he can, you know, he's, he's had his back up against the wall many occasions before. Um, he will still believe that somewhere deep down, I think. But, so the question should be, is he, should he be sacked? And the answer is yes. Because you, relationship between a manager and a club sometimes gets to a point where they are so, the manager is, is actually a hindrance rather than a help to the team. And that's not just because of the team he's picking, uh, the style of football, it's just his presence is toxic now at the club. So it, it's not on, it's not Steve Bruce because he's a, a Newcastle fan or he's from the area or anything. It's not, it's not, it's not on him to make that decision. It's on the owner and it's just another failing of the owner which is the biggest issue at Newcastle and has been for more than a decade. I, I don't much like the flags and stuff either. It's, a, you know, the vitriol of it, and particularly after the way his time at Aston Villa ended with the cabbage being hurled onto the pitch and whatnot. He said, you know, I think everyone in the media kind of thinks that Steve Bruce is a pretty decent guy and he's had a tough time in recent years. Um, but this game was also always going to highlight the the kind of the malaise in Newcastle and the the contrast between what a club who has some kind of plan and identity and sense of like adventure even like Brighton and this is Brighton and Hove Albion that we're contrasting with Newcastle United um you know in the game let's look at some of the stats there three Newcastle had three touches in Brighton's box one shot on target Brighton had six, made 642 passes to Newcastle's 291. Like we knew this all before, but it's still pretty stark when you see it there, right in front of you. And the difference in the, in those two teams and their, their style of play. And it, you know, I think it just kind of, that was the final straw for most Newcastle fans. But that's, I think, I think you wouldn't disagree with anything Greg has said there about, I mean, comparing, you know, when you talk about Brighton, there you're talking about Brighton, the club, aren't you? And you're talking about the, not just Potter, but what's built around him and uh, yeah. the, the fact that, you know, stuff is joined up. You know, you get a manager and you tailor your recruitment around them, not just that manager, but about what you think is a sustainable style. So if Potter left, that, you know, you'd be bringing in someone you hope with a, a similar ethos. And of course, you know, that that's why the contrast with Newcastle is so stark because, you know, we've seen through different managers that that doesn't come close to existing. Um, dubious appointments in re obviously very scattergun recruitment as well. So, you know, I, yeah, you can get rid of Bruce, but no one, no one um, thinks that, you know, s sorts out Newcastle, do they? It might give a better chance of survival. That's the one thing you have to say now. Because as I say, it's toxic. The, his presence there is now a hindrance. So what have they got? How many games have they got left? Nine or something? I, I think they probably have a better chance of Premier League survival with someone else in the hot seat now. Alison, do, do they? Or is it too late for someone to turn the juggernaut around? Are well, you suggesting that Sam Allardyce leaves West Brom and goes to Newcastle? <laughs> I'm, uh, well, Rafa, Rafa, Rafa Benitez, Rafa Benitez would go in, wouldn't he? I mean, can you imagine? 
Can you imagine what a fairy tale that would be for the Newcastle fans? <laughs> Actually, I want that to now happen because... <laughs> could someone as good as Rafa Benitez, though, re- realistically, could even Rafa Benitez stop them on the trajectory they're on? If, well, we, we're probably guessing, aren't we, how, how poisonous it is in training. We, we've, we've had the leaked stories and um, it, just, it doesn't sound like it's going very well. Uh, manager to players they're not getting on so if that is true then someone coming in just to be different and to give them a boost and add a bit of stardust if it was it's not going to happen but if it was someone like Rafa Benitez then you'd think well yeah well yeah yeah they could do it they're not they're not bottom of the table they've got a little bit of wriggle room here they could I think they could but I mean what would be the more realistic thing would be uh, Graham Jones would just step up into the fill the boots and I don't know if that gives enough oomph of, of a sense of a change I don't know I mean I think yeah on balance if it's true how poor things are on the training round then you have to say it might just give them a boost to take a few points where they wouldn't. And that might be all it needs to stay up. Who knows with Newcastle United at the moment and Steve Bruce. I mean, I I think it maybe is a little bit too late uh, to move on. But that result against Brighton for me just shows you, uh, I think, how the tables are turning for Newcastle. And I think maybe what has kept Steve Bruce in the job to this point in time is Fulham have stalled slightly had they won one or two games more and Newcastle had been in the bottom three for the past couple of weeks and, and then they had this 3-0 defeat against Brighton, I think the, the calls would have been even louder sort of nationally than they are locally, if you know what I mean. But there you go. We'll see what happens uh, with Steve Bruce in the coming weeks. Let's move from the Premier League uh, to the FA Cup next. Of course, it was a split weekend. Leicester City have reached their first semi-final in 39 years. It was a 3-1 win over Manchester United. Uh, Alison, when it comes to Leicester, can we stop talking about them as some sort of fairy tale story? Are they the real deal? Well, I, oh, that is so funny you say that, Hugh, because I think, I think, as we're talking about the FA Cup specifically at the moment, there is an element of fairy tale to it because I think, and this leads on from what we were discussing about um, Newcastle as a club, as an entity, with its lack of philosophy. I think it's a priority at Leicester to win a trophy to honour the memory of the owner who tragically died in the helicopter crash. And I think um, Brendan Rodgers was under a bit of pressure for not understanding that in the way he treated the domestic cup competitions um, after his appointment. He He was putting out weakened teams and didn't seem to be giving it that sense of priority. And um, I feel like it's finally, you know, sunk in the way to, I don't know, cement his status as a successful manager at the club is to win a trophy. So I think, and that's also relevant because Manchester United went into the game looking like they didn't really care. I mean, their their their, their lineup wasn't um, wasn't their lineup did not scream this is important to us at all. Whereas Leicester, um, perhaps they had fewer choices because of, of injuries, but you know 
they, their their attitude and their lineup and commitment to the game was one of this really really matters and as, and I think I think there's a sort of a whole holistic approach going on. It is a very avuncular club, Leicester. There is a, a sense, you know, there are no fans in stadiums, so the clubs that can maintain that relationship to the supporters and make it mean something are the ones who are going to do better. I think Leicester are one of those clubs. So you get the sense with Leicester. It's really strange. You get, the fans are not there, but you feel like they are. And there are some clubs you go to in the pandemic where you just feel there is a huge disconnect. And it's nobody's fault. There aren't any fans there. And you, you could be watching anything with any context. But with Leicester, it's different. They, they somehow managed to maintain that sort of family feel. So I think they are the real deal in the FA Cup because I think they all on the same page and they want to do it um, because they feel they have to do it to honour honor the owner who died. The real deal in the FA Cup, says Alison. Matt, what about the Premier League? Is this a top six team to stay there? Well, I mean, they've got a decent chance of finishing top four, haven't they? And, and, you know, I think the way they're sustaining, obviously we saw the drop-off last year, you know, um, and that's 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 the question mark hanging over them. But, you know, form sustains, you know, um, Fafana continues to be one of the, you know, the absolute finds of the season. Tielemans is, is, you know, you look at the central midfield of United and compare it to, to Leicester's and they're com- completely embarrassed. Um, and, you know, says everything for Tielemans' ability, but also, you know, why, how he was missed um, uh, yeah, by United before. I mean, just there, you know, Ayanacho comes in and, you know, shows that they're not just uh, a Vardy team. In, he's been in showing... You know, great form. So, I think those, if they've got, you know, p- players like the Inacha coming in and meaning that they're not as susceptible if Avardi needs a break or was was to get injured or something, then that does give hope that they're not going to go through the the collapse, the sort of late season collapse that they had last time. Let's leave the discussion about everyone's favourite second striker, apart from Alison Rudd, Kalechi Inacho, for a moment, Gregor, because I don't want to. I don't want to upset Alison by making out he's anything above Olivier Giroud once again. I, I I've learnt my lesson with that one. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> what, what, what do you think? Look, we've spoken about Leicester in the past. You know, I just. We, we mentioned the squad before, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people latch onto the recruitment, and they say they're they're better prepared now, and and we did that in the past. But actually, are they a better team, better football team year on year? I think so, and I think one of the one of the biggest things in recent weeks is we're seeing players who have I, I, I tuned into Brendan Rodgers press conference last week and he, he was asked about Ian Acho and how somebody who signed in 2017 I think has been kept happy enough to be on the sidelines and be this bit part player for so long and he's saying it's the way you, you communicate it to him and tell him that he, you know how much value he is to the club still um, and I think we're seeing that with the way that Albrighton's come in, the way that Iosi Perez has come in, the way that Ian Acho clearly has come in and played like this. Um, and then, you know, the, the broader question of their squad in terms of they lose uh, Pereira right back and Albrighton plays right wing back. Uh, James Justin, Castagna comes in at left back. Uh, that back three, the, the back three, <laughs> when you compare it to the fact is, well, this is another thing. I think we're, you're always saying, is this a fairy tale? I think we still also have to just remember how heavily things are stacked against Leicester. 
They were playing against a team whose revenues are more than double in Manchester United and who, you know, they, they lose a player every single summer and Harry Maguire was the glaring kind of uh, example of that. And I don't think Harry Maguire gets in Leicester's team now when you look at their back three. An 80, 80 million power, uh, pound uh, sale I don't think you know they've they have improved their defence since he's left. When you look at Fafana, Soyuncu, and Johnny Evans, um, so I just, you know they've got the eighth highest wage bill in the in the Premier League. I still think they are they are punching above their weight, and a lot of that is is because of as of you know in contrast to so many clubs we talk we talk about is the kind of holistic approach and, and vision. And I also I also think that they're one of the most kind of versatile. And adaptable teams because you know when they when they lose Barnes and Madison, they, they go two up front. And Ianacho and Vardy are playing are playing brilliant together. And Iosi is the one in behind. And they go three at the back when they when they have injuries to to certain defenders or certain players. So they've been very flexible, and they're flexible within games too. You know they started so high press against Manchester United, got in the lead, and then they can sit back and play in the break. And they're you know I think. I think they kind of, uh, although it's no longer a fairy tale, I think they are year on year, the kind of incremental steps they are taking. This is the way of, of kind of bridging that. It's what is still a huge cavernous gap between clubs who've had, who have decades of Premier League and European football and that kind of status. They are doing that year by year. And I think, yes, they are going to be a team that are regular in the top six. And on the fairy tale, I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that they are exactly the reason that the, the the top clubs are trying to change every rule they can exactly. to crush to crush the fairy tale. I mean, it's you know we we should uh, absolutely agree with everything that uh, the Gregor says and put extra stock in it because you know there are big forces at play here to to stop it happening. You know, so that you know that, uh, a Manchester United and Arsenal, Liverpool can leapfrog them. Um, if 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 on European places etc. So it's it's you know we we need to not only treasure them but realise that because of what they have done obviously with the top, the the famous title win but even this season if they do finish top four these are forces that that others would kill so you know it's uh, all the more reason to say to, to to cherish what they're achieving. A team who have got double the revenues who are Manchester United who they sold the best player to for eighty million quid they comprehensively outplayed them and they're a point behind them in the Premier League and. You know, it's it's no longer it's no longer like that big of a surprise. I think that's I still think that's pretty incredible. And let, you know how, as I say, how much the odds are stacked against them. They are kind of year on year. They're getting closer and closer to being among those those teams fighting for the top. No, you're not even just the top six, the top four. They're fighting for the top four every year now. They've lost their best players year on year as well. Um, but just reflecting on Manchester United, Alison Oligan Solskjaer says it's in the manager's job description at Manchester United to win trophies. And you were talking about your football dreams earlier on. And, and I, I just started daydreaming slightly during that FA Cup match yesterday. And I, I imagined Brendan Rodgers in the dugout instead of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer leading Manchester United. I know I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, but it was just too tempting. Um, is that the sort of job he might be taking in the future? Can Leicester stop him from going somewhere like that? No, they can't because he's he's really ambitious. I think he's the most nakedly ambitious manager we've, we've come across. Even... I don't know. There's something. There's just something about Brendan Rodgers and his ego that won't won't quite 
you know, hide under the surface, no matter how good a job he's doing, I think he will he will move on earlier than Leicester would like him to because he sees his destiny at a traditionally recognised big club. So they may as well just get him to win a cup now before he goes, is, is, uh, would be my advice, rather than thinking they can plan for the next five years of a Rodgers-Leicester dynasty. That's Leicester's biggest... Uh... That's the biggest risk to their kind of progression, undoubtedly, because I agree. I think, and I think within the next probably the next year, you'll see one, one big, you know, one of England's big six clubs coming for him, and he will deserve it too, because outside Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola, he's he's the next best in the Premier League from from my from my point of view. In terms of some of the managers who've been at Leicester in recent times, though, Matt, maybe they've taken a, a step up in terms of their recruitment in that area as well. Because even if did even if Brendan Rodgers did leave Leicester, you imagine that the new man or woman that comes in would be a, an incredible talent compared to the likes of Claude Puel or Nigel Pearson or even Claudio Ranieri for that matter. Maybe, but yeah, it's it's a you know change the manager can always be a big disruption, and also you know if if Brenda was Rogers was to leave, it might signal to up and you know ambitious, upwardly mobile players that maybe it's you know that's when they start questioning as well. You know, is it time for me to try and get my move to the traditional uh, bigger club and obviously to get more money? Um, that 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 small matter as well. So you know, I think that's Leicester have. Yeah, I mean, the risk of getting a post bag from Leicester. I mean, yeah, we are celebrating what they are doing. I, I hope, but it's it's the real world. Gregor mentioned the turnover that puts a limit on salaries. You know, if if you want to earn the top money, chances are you are going to have to end up at a, a Man United or otherwise. Even if as a team there, um, yeah, we're put very much in their place by Leicester. Speaking of manager egos, let's move on. Jose Mourinho. He was brought to Spurs actually to win trophies, wasn't he? He was chucked out of the Europa League pretty unceremoniously uh, last week. He lost a 2-0 first leg lead against Dinamo Zagreb, knocked out 3-2. Great game, thrilling hat-trick, but of course a, a low point in Tottenham's season. They did, though, beat Aston Villa 2-0 to move up to sixth in the Premier League this weekend. Three points off a place in the top four. They're already into the EFL Cup final. Um, Matt, could they have the best bad season ever? The best bad season ever. That's a good, uh, right. I need to spend five minutes getting my head around that. Uh, <laughs> first. Um, uh, never cease to be amazed. I mean, I, you know, I, I thought, um, a couple of months ago, the Spurs were actually going to have a decency. I mean, I, you know, well, well versed and, um, longstanding, um, issues with bits of, of, of Jose and what he stands for and how he sets things up and his, 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 eth- his wider ethos. But actually, you know, as they were when they were flying and he was getting a team to graph for him, I, I actually thought they would have, you know, a, a smoother season than they're having. And, uh, you know, I'm still trying to get ahead, my head around even that performance last week because it was so, um, yeah, inept. It was it was so lacking in spirit uh, that that yeah. It's as Mourinho said said himself. No excuse. I mean, it it, it leaves scars. So I, <laughs> I think trying to work out the trajectory is isn't easy. I think, um, but yeah, they're in a cup final. They're still competing right up there. I don't I don't think they're going to get um, top four because I think Leicester are looking good enough and I think Chelsea are a better team. So I don't think they're going to get 
top four, they might finish fifth. Um, you can see them getting ahead of West Ham, but I think they are going to finish outside the top four. Um, some of the reports last week suggested that that in itself would get Mourinho the sack, but if he came fifth and and won a cup final, albeit against Man City, so good luck with that. Um, yeah, that's not a bad bad season, is it? What was what was the question? Bad, good, bad season. Um, <laughs> Finishing fifth and winning a trophy. Um, it was a good yeah. question. Yeah, <laughs> it may be the best, the best bad season ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, everyone's perceiving it as being terrible because we thought they were going to challenge for the Premier League title, but they could win a cup. They, they could conceivably finish in the top four. Yeah, but the, still, the atmosphere is just awful, isn't it? It's like I've just been really bemused by all this kind of all the sound that's coming out of the club in the last week in terms of what what was he going on about? about having two 16-year-olds on the bench or whatever, you know, as if this is like a, this is such a big deal. Like, I know he picked, he picked a, a strange, you know, a slightly unexpected team and he gave Tanganga a game and Rodon and, you know, he was basically, you thought he was saying that these guys definitely really care. I can have no doubt. You're talking about the Villa win. Seven yes. changes made. Tanganga started, Joe Rodon yes. and, and others. But then he was, but he was also kept highlighting having kids on the bench as if, you know, these guys who, if they have one minute on the pitch, it will mean everything to them. So he's basically saying that if people who aren't that age, you know, they've, they've seasoned pros, they, if they're, if they're not, they're not really part, but they don't really, maybe they were saying they don't care, I think, kind of in an underhand way. And, and that basically comes back to what Hugo Lloris said as well. There's people who are not all kind of, they're not pulling in the same direction anymore. And so clearly there's disrest, you know, unrest, sorry, and, and uh, disharmony behind the scenes. So uh, in midweek, I thought this was the beginning of the end, actually. That was my kind of instinctive. Same. I thought this was the beginning of the end for him because when it's the same old battle, if there are, if it's between the players and the manager, and there seems to be a divide now, the manager always loses. Um, so uh, I think, I still think, Mourinho's time is, is coming to an end, actually. Are you saying a 2-0 win against an Aston Villa team who looked incredibly flat without Jack Grealish uh, is, is, is somehow changed the narrative at Spurs? I don't... I, I mean, that's ridiculous short-termism. The fallout from going out of the Europa League, in it, I mean, was it's just phenomenally dreadful. And that seven-and-a-half-minute diatribe from Hugo Lloris who is you know he, he's almost Mr Spurs he's been there so long he's the captain and he the things he said that you never say okay he might be going to PSG and he might not care anymore but you don't say those things unless you're really really getting upset with the way the club is fractured Tra- training doesn't I mean it seems to me you've got people in training trying hard if they think they're going to play and you've got people in training not trying very hard if they they're not going to play You've got rumours that there are some players still can't quite, haven't quite got over the fact that Mauricio Pochettino isn't there anymore. It's You've got um, Mourinho refusing to take responsibility for anything that happens. It's like he, he talks as though he's uh, parachuted in as some sort of um, management consultant 
and he's giving an assessment from afar. Oh, yes, I can see we've got a team here who, who might occasionally play well, but they really got not, they can't play well just because it's a reaction to a bad result. They have to learn to be brilliant all the time. That's his job. That's down to him. It's not some external force that he's playing with. The, the reason the players seem to be on this sort of up-down, up-down, you know, uh, Results-wise, or they're top of the table, and suddenly they plummet, 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 and then they go back up, and then everyone says, "Oh, we overreacted. It's all fine." It, 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 it's, 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 it's down to him. It's down to him. He was, he was brought in as one of the world's most experienced and successful managers to get to grip with a group of players who don't seem to have the belief that they're at a club that wins stuff, and inject them with that, you know, that special Mourinho magic, which says, "Yes, you can win. You can win anything." And they don't seem to be, uh, there's no team spirit, there's no camaraderie, there's no sense of, it's, there's, there's cliques forming. And, and he's just incredibly lucky that he has some very, very talented players that, that can make sure that they score the goals they need to get the points to make sure it's not an utterly ludicrous season. But I don't think you can. I really don't think you can think the 2-0 win over Aston Villa negates, negates all the, the vitriol that came after the, the North London derby defeat and then the Europa League. I absolutely defeat. don't, but I just think that he was willing to, to play younger players and to kind of jettison some of the experienced names that we we can now infer, and we knew already, that who have a bit of an attitude problem, or he, he perceives that at least. So that means that there is... I think we're, we're seeing a lane drawn in the sand. I don't think he's going to want to use these players going forward. He'll want to have a bit of an overhaul and they're never allowed to do that. So I think his time's coming to end. Also, his, pre, his pre-match interview was interesting in that he was saying, you know, he was asked about, is it important you see a reaction? He's saying, well, look, I'm of a school. Again, as Alison's saying, separating himself from the players. I'm of a school where every game is like, you know, so important and you're fighting for every single game. You know, not every not everyone is like that. And so part of that's maybe true. There, you know, not every player is like that. Not every manager is like that. Mourinho is a winner, whatever you would say about him. But it, as Alison says, it's his job to recognise that and try and get the best from them. Just saying to them, you're not, <laughs> or even saying in public, you guys aren't a winner like me. Or you, you know, you've not got it in you to be every single week, every minute of every day on it and a winner. Saying that to them is not exactly going to get them to play their very best football, is it? So, whatever way you look at it, Mourinho, like Steve Bruce, is a hindrance. He's a hindrance to. He's not helping Spurs now. His presence at the football club, I don't believe, is helping them. I think we've you know long disputed whether his his methodology, you know, and basically, you know, you have the ball and we'll uh, we'll we'll soak it up and smack on uh, and try and smack you on the break is is. You know whether that's sort of out of time. I think you know we talked even when um, I mean it was a double-edged compliment to Spurs when we talked about when they were playing well and you know certain games you had Harry Kane you know defending on the twenty-yard you know twenty yards outside his own his his own goal and dropping deep like that. On the one hand, it was like wow, look at these you know he's got star players working incredibly hard for the team. On the other, it's like well you know how much work like that does. A son or a cane want to do you know they want to play football they want to show their strengths you know how, how much if you're asking top 
players to sort of sacrifice a lot of their strengths to do that. I think it does have a limited shelf life. It always will have a limited shelf life. I just didn't think the shelf life would be as short uh, potentially as it's proved, but that's maybe again it's a you know, Mourinho is uh, um, so aggressive in his man management that, that that's what winding up players I mean we've seen it with it. Eric Dyer I think is one of the most fascinating things I mean I, I was under the distinct impression that he was a sort of become a real Mourinho loyalist part of the sort of senior group that had sort of bought into it and was sort of fully on board and now you know he looks like one of the ones who's been jettisoned as as you know sort of you know uh, one of the bad guys, and there was you know, a bit of niggle in the, the press about that not not so long ago. So I think you know you see someone like Eric Dyer. If that's if that's gone sour, then you know that sort of underlines the point that Gregor was making about you know when you start getting that sort of niggle among senior players in in changing rooms, that that starts to cause big problems for a squad. Just to say, I, I think you may be right though. You know, I think Spurs do lack players who. Who are real winners, but it doesn't. As I go back to it, it doesn't really matter. You, you can't. It's his job to get the best from them and to motivate them and to to make them perform at their best as often as he can. And as and just just tell just kind of highlighting their flaws, uh, and it's character flaws as much as you know professional football and skill skill flaws things like that. That you know, it's it's, it's just bizarre. I think. He increasingly looks like a kind of figure from the past, and 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 the and the and the figures he associated himself with in the past, his players that were these warriors, they don't really, they're not, they don't not exist anymore, but they're few and far between. Football's changed. Uh, we'll see if Mourinho, the magician, has suddenly become uh, Mourinho, the mediocre. Uh, in the future, we'll see if they get into the top four as well. Could be a massive end of the season for him and the club as well. Uh, remember, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, you can rate us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from. Also, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times so you don't miss the next episode. At the moment, we're offering you 50% off a full digital subscription for the first six months. You can stay well informed on our latest episodes and get the latest from our expert sports writers as well. Click the link in the description of this episode to get started. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
There is big news today for women's football. The BBC will show the Women's Super League on free-to-air TV for the first time in a landmark three-year deal. 22 live matches on the BBC, 44 of them on Sky Sports. This could be massive for the game. I know I've spoken in the past about capitalising on some of those incredible names that have come across due to the COVID situation to play in the Women's Super League. And, and Alison, this for me is doing that. What do, you, what do you make of today's news? It's going to be amazing for women's football. It's, it's not just that it's free to air. It's the packaging you get with Sky. It will make it, you will, it'll feel like part of the elite sport family and you might well get families thinking you know looking at the fixtures what they can watch together and thinking oh yeah we'll watch that premier league game and then oh before that we've got you know chelsea v spurs the women that looks tasty and it because it will be given the proper packaging i'm you know you can guarantee sky won't do this <laughs> you know, the most boring men's games are packaged as super, super, duper, duper, amazing Sunday, blitz, blitz, blitz. So they will do this for women. They will, they will draw you in, whether you like it or not. No matter how prejudiced against women's sport you are, you will be sucked in. If you're a sports lover with a Sky package, you will be sucked in to thinking, I have to watch, I have to watch Chelsea women because there's something amazing going on. And then once you've watched it and you are impressed because the product has to match the hype to some degree, then you might get into the rhythm of thinking, yeah, yeah, I like this. And that then snowballs, doesn't it? Because then you get more sponsorship, you get, some, you get more income, you get shirt sales, you get the whole, the whole caboodle. And um, the reason I'm really pleased about this deal is that it's, a, it's just a beautiful journey because um, I've always maintained that women's football was not served well by being shown on TV too soon. The BBC showed the odd women's game before they were ready for the public audience and that the audience were curious and they tuned in and they saw substandard stuff. And I think that set back women's football. People thought, oh, oh I don't think they play well, women. I don't like it. And they were right to say that. There was there was there been a lot, lot of learning going on in the last sort of, 16 years or so of just um, English, British players getting to grips. You don't, get, you don't get so many ridiculous score lines now where it's all one-sided or where there's only only one team that can play. On an international level, you get um, really quite beautiful, competitive, wonderful football with, with tension and that sense of you know, there's a, there's a world here with d different roots. Um, you know, the Americans are just so impressive because they've been at it for so long and they take it so seriously over there. So I think the packet, the packaging, it's, it sounds shallow to say packaging matters, but it actually it does. This, it shouldn't, a, a good game of football shouldn't be there. Oh, well, you know, we sort of felt we ought to show it. Uh, it's there if you want it. It should be given the full treatment so that, you know, and if it is given the full treatment, it will allow people who are new to the game to get to know the characters involved, the managers, their stories, the players, as you say, Hugh, international stars coming over to to England because they see that as a the happening place where they can earn a bit of money as well. And once you get to know people's stories and, you know, what they're good at, and so on, uh, you will you will buy into it. And I, I, 
I don't know. The one inch, tiny side issue is whether people feel they have to support the same women's team as the men's team or whether it's seen as a separate entity and you can go down a completely different path with it. Um, I, what do you think? I, I, I think you can go down a different path, a completely different path. As a glory hunting Manchester United fan, <laughs> I think Manchester City are going to be right up my street then. Matt, go ahead. <laughs> There's a whole new trade in half and half shirts there to be done. I'm, 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 I, I just, I'll just like to patent that now before, um, before it goes, goes big. No, I, I agree. I think one of a really big point that Alison makes there is about um, people engaging with the stories of players because I think this is important not just for getting the action out there and the match action available but I, mean, I remember speaking you know around um, having covered some of the 2019 Women's World Cup out there obviously when England get the semi-final and I think again it was it was important because people start the profile of that and I think it was what was it 11 million people watched that semi-final it's important because people get to start to you know get their favorite players and engage with individuals and start to follow because i think that is a big way that any sport grows it's not you know it's not just sort of you know a lot of people won't sit down and watch a full 90 minute match whether that's you know men or women that's you know um uh, yeah, it's, it, but it is people will engage in particular stories that they hear about and they'll want to then understand more about the stories and they'll start following them on social media and they'll start reading about them more and that just that just grows things bit by bit so i think that's the profile has so many benefits beyond just you know there's a game on at a certain time it is because as soon as you start increasing the profile of of, of notable individuals that has all kinds of sort of benefits across the wider media as well what about the packaging? I, I, I like that that discussion, Alison, around you know, how it's presented to the audience. Uh, Gregor, if Sky Sports is the Lamborghini, what, what does free-to-wear BBC represent in terms of packaging? <laughs> That's a cruel question. Um, <laughs> look, that, uh, as, as much as everything Alison's saying is true there, I mean, they're saying they're going to get the full Sky treatment, and that's brilliant, and you know, the Sky are brilliant what they do. The, the, I think it's 18 to 22 uh, games are going to be shown going to be shown on the BBC in a season yeah um, a lot of people don't have Sky that's that, that's very important it's like the best of both worlds you're getting all of this kind of extra oomph from the Sky uh, packaging uh, and exposure and and money of course but to make, to keep that the kind of if it, uh, you know a, a women's game is a kind of fixture of a weekend almost um, on free to air TV that's the, the exposure to a much wider audience is, is also very important I also like that there's a skin of 75, 25% split to the, to the championship. Um, you know, men's football could learn a little bit from that. And, um, and also that the, the money is going to be split evenly throughout the, you know, throughout the, the WSL. So, um, yeah, a, a huge day, but as, as the guys have said, it's, you know, it's not really about the money. Yes. The sponsorship will increase and, and this is valuable, um, valuable additional, uh, income for, for, for a lot of clubs, although, you know, I think the amount they, that that they'll get would 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 uh, would not really scratch the surface from some of the big clubs' wage bills. The the main thing is the exposure, and that's just going to be transformed. I think so. So huge day. The FA say it's definitely the biggest commercial broadcast agreement in women's football and to be honest that 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 is massive because there are a number of teams whether we know it or not in fact the biggest names in women's football in terms of the, their men's clubs have almost operated on a loss in recent years you know they, they have gone out to try and get big big names in but especially with the impact of, of covid a lot of those sides in terms of the women's operation 
have lost money. So it's massively important that they're going to fill the coffers with this TV deal in, in that regard as well. But I do, I agree with you. I think free to wear is massive. There are other sports that, that could learn a huge lesson around getting your games onto. And it's very important to say BBC One and BBC Two specifically as part of this deal as well, not on just on the iPlayer or click the red button. You know, it will be there on a Saturday afternoon on BBC One and that is huge exposure we know already um, for, for many people in the country and I'm sure people will tune into games that they haven't seen before and there could be a whole new audience uh, coming up for women's football so a massive massive day um, for the game um, before we go I wanted to talk very quickly around the upcoming internationals England have games on the horizon three of them world cup qualifiers to be exact uh, they'll be hosting san marino later on this week on thursday at the weekend they will go to albania and then next wednesday they will host poland and of course we will be talking about all of those games in detail but over the course of those three matches i wanted to ask you all which player you think needs to impress the manager gareth southgate most whether that's someone that's regularly in the england squads or whether that's one of the new faces alison what do you think well, I think if he's going to stick, and it looks like he is, with uh, Southgate going to stick with three, four, three. I think he needs to look. Oh, for a start, I think Southgate needs to start thinking about winning, winning, and not being nice to people, and thinking that people deserve calls, call-ups, and I don't know where that's going. Um, I think he needs to think uh, rather ruthlessly about how he's going to win something, and if he's going to play three, four, three, he needs to look at Chelsea and how. Tuchel has made that, you know, hit the ground running with that, looking really good, which means I think he needs to look at Reese James, who for me, um, and this is this is an odd thing to say, and I have no factual basis for it except it's a feeling. Reese James looks to me like an England player. He looks like somebody who could very easily just slot in doing what he does for his club, for his country. There's something about his the way he is. He's just very, very solid and um, quite passionately patriotic and will give it all. So I would say if, if Rhys James can impress over the next few days, weeks, um, then I'd be very tempted to think I can, you know, if I was the manager, I, this 3-4-3 three, three can work. I've got Rhys James there. He does, he, he knows how to make it how to make it work. And also, you know, you've got other, you've got that sort of England flavour to Chelsea as well. So if you can generate an idea of replication of what is happening at Stamford Bridge with England, where they, Chelsea are amazing, their camaraderie, those scenes when they, they went through in the Champions League. We all we always think Chelsea just a club about having lots of dosh, but they seem to engender this real passionate family feel. Anyway, I would say this is the big moment. This is a big moment for Reese James to seal his place. I'm going to keep that theme going, particularly with international football over the coming months. Feelings before facts. We want a spirited team going to the tournament. We, we don't care about data. We don't care about expected goals. Who's got the passion? It was all about gathering tears. <laughs> Do none of you see what I mean? There's something about his demeanour, which I think means he's completely unfazed about anything at all. I agree. He's a very yeah. calm character for someone of his age. He's, yeah, he is... He is England's right back now. Absolutely. Um, I would say that it's important now for Luke Shaw because he, I think, you know, we, we spoke a bit, we've, and we'll probably speak again about the formation and whatnot, but he's not going to change it, is he? So there are there are a few spots. One is 
with John, Jordan Henderson being out, someone along Declan Rice, uh, alongside Declan Rice, I'd like to see it be Mason Mount. But Southgate spoke a little bit kind of cautiously about that prospect. But the other is uh, on the left, and I think Luke Shaw. There's no, he's a little bit more dynamic than Ben Chilwell, and I think he's got a chance of after being out in the cold, coming straight back in and being being England's left-sided player. Matt, who would you choose? Phil Foden is a is a player. I mean, he's he is still a baby in terms of international football. This is his first season with the the senior squad. Um, what's he got? Only three caps, and I think with the quality he's got, uh, you know, I just want to see him straight in the starting starting team. Which I mean, Gregor says, you know, rightly that we, we do seem stuck with this formation. But the fact is, that if he played a different formation, say a four three three, whatever, there would be at least a couple of positions where Foden does get in. There's, you know, you suddenly start seeing the variety and you're seeing where Foden could influence here or it could move here if we play 3-4-3 then it's got to be as one of the wide forwards and and A that's an area stiff competition and B I'm not necessarily sure it's perfectly suited for him so you know I think that's but you know he's shown he can play it and he's a brilliant enough player that I'm sure he can adapt to it and hopefully the, the, the you know the coaches can adapt with him but yeah Foden given everything we've seen of him given that say you know it's sort of he just looks like someone who has got the the chance to sort of light up an international tournament so I, I just can't 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 get um, enough of him really I think it's a huge opportunity for him as well given Jack Grealish is out at the moment go ahead Gregor no I was saying what were you who do you think this is a big one for do you know what I, I, I was gonna there were a couple of players who are regularly in the England squad who I think it's still a massive period for um, who, who you would not be surprised as it comes to the tournament that they're left out and if they really want to go I think the likes of Eric Dyer, for example need to be more impressive particularly as they, they might not get much of an opportunity for the club the way things are going um, I, I would agree with Matt that Phil Foden as I say with Jack Grealish's injury has an opportunity to play centrally and maybe show just how important he could be to Gareth Southgate in that 23 for this summer as well but I think it's the fringe centre forward the, the, the backup centre forward where Gareth Southgate really hasn't cemented exactly who he wants. Danny Ings isn't in the squad this time around and he's been looked at before. Of course, Dominic Calvert-Lewin is there, but I think it's massive for Ollie Watkins. He basically has 10 days to show in training and whatever match opportunity he gets that he can go to this tournament. I, you know, even if he is on good form for his club over the next, you know, nine games to the end of the season, I think Southgate will take a lot from his interactions within the squad and his time at St. George's Park over the next sort of 10 days. I I think it was already um, between him and Patrick Bamford in terms of this squad. He's been given that vote of, of, of approval by the manager and now he needs to run with it because Patrick Bamford, as we've seen this weekend, might hit a run of form and that would leave Ollie Watkins out. So if he really wants to go, I, I'm interested to see really if he gets any game time and that will that will all be off the back of how he trains. If he, if he does well at St. George's Park, he will get game time. And if he does well there, you never know. Look what happened with Rhys James. Came up from the under-21s. We're talking about him being England's first choice right wing back. So, you know, Gareth Southgate will give you a chance. And if you take it, you know, you never know. You might end up there uh, at Wembley because there's no plane to get this summer. But you know what I mean. You, I couldn't agree with you more because if you, um, Ollie Watkins, everything that's good about Villa, everyone thinks it's down to Jack Grealish. But if you talk talk to the manager, he will say it's Ollie Watkins because he's he, he does the work rate of two men. He gives everything in every game, in every training session. He will, it doesn't matter what you ask him to do, he will do it. Plus he can score the odd goal. If 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 Ollie Watkins can replicate that attitude with England, he'll, he'll be a shoe in because you, you need players like that. 
I'm surprised Gregor hasn't bit back with Che Adams as as um, the new Scotland saviour who's going to terrorise us at Wembley this uh, this summer. Yeah, we spoke about him a little bit last week, and uh, um, I just still don't think he's going to dislodge Lyndon Dykes. He's my he's my idol, of course. <laughs> <laughs> he's back in the goals, Greg. I bring I bring good news. Whenever he does something with his hair, I think that just gives him a little spur of extra something. <laughs> I bring good news for you from uh, from Loftus Road. He looked like uh, he's got back. He's, he's got back in his run to the Euros perfectly. I love it. All of these players, I think, are going to have to time their run perfectly. We're going to be talking about the nail biter coming up on Thursday, San Marino against England. I'm sure uh, on the next game podcast. Thank you for being with me, Alison Rudd, Matt Dickinson, and Gregor Robertson. Thank you for listening as well. Remember, before we go, don't forget we're offering you 50% off a full digital subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times for your first six. Months. The link to get started is in the description of this podcast or just type thetimes.co.uk forward slash sale forward slash the game to get yourself started. We'll see you on Thursday. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.